Multiple Myeloma Hub Podcasts, brought to you by Scientific Education Support. Hello and welcome to the Multiple Myeloma Hub Podcast. Today we'll be hearing from Sagar Loniel of Winship Cancer Institute of Emory University in Atlanta, US. This episode is part of a series of podcasts dedicated to the first Multiple Myeloma Hub Satellite Symposium, which was held virtually in May 2021. In this episode, our speaker will be discussing whether transplantation is still relevant in the management of myeloma. I appreciate the opportunity to be up here and talk about uh, transplant. And I guess compared to all the high-tech, newfangled ideas that uh, Mohammed and Mari V showed you, I feel like the old school guy talking about the Model T when I talk about the role of transplant in the management of myeloma. Uh, But I think the Model T is still an effective method of transport. Uh, and we'll see that it continues to offer a significant benefit. Here are my disclosures. And so I want to start off really talking about the fact that transplant does continue to have a significant benefit for patients in terms of one of the longest follow-ups that we have now uh, with modern myeloma therapy. And this is a series that was published by our group uh, uh, last year, uh, looking at a thousand consecutively treated patients with RVD induction, single transplant, and then risk-adapted maintenance. And by risk-adapted, we mean single agent LEN continuously for the blue curve uh, at the bottom and RVD consolidation and maintenance for the red curve at the bottom. Uh, And I think the key point to take home is that the longest progression-free survivals and overall survivals we've ever seen always include the use of high-dose therapy and transplant. And um, my my cautionary tale is going to be to beware of the siren song of early MRD. And what I mean by that is early MRD is a great endpoint to get to, but in and of itself, it may not be sufficient to get us to long-term PFS, long-term overall survival, and long-term cure. And so just beware of that siren song. Now, what do we know about transplant in the era of novel agents? Well, this is uh, data from Professor Palumbo almost eight years ago now that demonstrated that if you use transplant uh, with uh, lenalidomide maintenance in the dark curve, uh, you clearly do improve the progression-free survival. And the follow-up here was too slow, was too short to really be able to demonstrate improvements in overall survival. And this to me is almost the second corollary to this idea, which is if you're going to talk about outcomes in patients in the induction therapy setting who's fit, fit patients, then their median survival is 10 to 12 to 15 years now, based on that data I just showed you before. And it's unreasonable to expect that what you do at the very beginning is going to necessarily improve their overall survival. I think what we're looking for is significant improvements in PFS because the disease is never more sensitive than it is at the time of the original diagnosis. So PFS, uh, I think, again, is clearly important. And as you can see, the median PFS is clearly better than the SWOG 777 study, which used RVD and no transplant. Uh, uh, And so again, transplant continues at least in historical uh, comparisons to be superior to what you might argue are better regimens that are trying to go forward without high-dose therapy and transplant. So what about the Forte trial? Well, the Forte trial, I think is a really important trial because this to me proves why MRD negativity is such a siren song. So it was really three-armed. It used KCD and, and the short version on KCD is 
it always loses. Any combination that uses cyclophosphamide as part of the induction, whether it's bortezomib cyclodex or carfilzomib cyclodex, is going to lose to an imid-PI combination. And that imid-PI can include thalidomide. So in my mind, uh, cyclophosphamide-based combinations are, are not useful. That, and, I, and I recognize that saying that in Europe is, is uh, a bad thing to do, but I'm going to tell you I don't think cyclo really holds up to everything else. The real meat of this trial was comparing KRD times four followed by transplant versus KRD times 12 without a transplant. And this was based on small phase two data that suggested the depth of response with KRD, the MRD negativity with KRD was so good that you didn't need a transplant because you were already getting where transplant would get you. Well, if all you looked at was responses, if all you looked at was MRD negativity, then you might come to that conclusion. And if you look at it here, you can see, again, ignore this uh, uh, table on the left because I think this, this is irrelevant. But if you look at the two KRD with or without transplant, what you'll see is MRD negativity rates are relatively similar. Uh, response rates are relatively similar as well. And so you might look at this early endpoint and say, well, gee, I'm not sure you really need the transplant. However, what we know about the group that underwent transplant is that their sustained MRD negativity at 12 months was clearly higher than the group that did not have a transplant. And in fact, if you begin to look at, um, uh, um, at uh, uh, median follow-up here, what you'll see is that KRD transplant, the PFS was much better than KRD without a transplant. That's despite the fact that at an early endpoint, KRD without a transplant looked the same. So again, beware of early endpoints that are not necessarily validated in terms of head-to-head -head comparisons uh, for long-term follow-up. Again, if you begin to look at three-year PFS, what you'll see is that pretty much everywhere, uh, the addition of, uh, of a transplant to KRD had better, whether the LDH was high or low, whether it was standard risk or high-risk fish, ISS-1, or ISS two and three, despite the fact that if you looked at almost all of these, the response rate and MRD negativity early would look similar. The siren song of early MRD, beware. Now, what about looking again here uh, in terms of overall survival? Uh, this is the data, uh, uh, or sorry, looking at a year uh, rate of one year sustained MRD negativity. The highest is with KRD transplant. Uh, the, the next two are without transplant or with KCD, and you can see sustained MRD negativity is significantly lower. Now, you saw from Professor Moti earlier uh, the IFM 2009 trial that looked at basically RVD with or without transplant. And again, early on, people were saying, well, you know, the transplant clearly improves progression-free survival. This, to me, is a very important endpoint because, again, a newly diagnosed myeloma, my goal is to prolong that PFS for as long as I can because the disease is never more sensitive than it is at the time of initial presentation. And if you look here, clearly there's a difference in progression-free survival. But what had been demonstrated earlier was that if you achieve 10 to the minus 6 MRD negativity, it didn't matter how you got there, your PFS was identical. That was true early on. But if you now begin to look at PFS, if you look at patients here in red that are MRD negative with transplant versus um, uh, MRD negative with RVD alone, what you see is the PFS is better for the MRD negative patients who had a transplant. 
than it is for the MRD negative who did not have a transplant. So just getting to MRD negativity is not sufficient. You need to have that sustained MRD negativity and the absolute rate of MRD negativity was much higher in the transplant group than in the non-transplant group. So again, it's not just about that achieving that endpoint, it's about sustaining that endpoint. So how do we explain this discrepancy? If you look at it, go back to the iceberg slides, where again, if you look at conventional CR, you look at stringent CR, you look at flow CR, or you look at NGS CR at 10 to the minus six, what you might, what you might believe is that if you're looking at just this threshold, you might get similar rates between transplant and no transplant, but you're not measuring down to 10 to the minus seven or 10 to the minus eight. And so the presumption is that transplant is either getting you to a deeper level of MRD negativity, a sensitivity that we simply cannot measure right now. And thus we can't distinguish between, for instance, KRD transplant versus KRD no transplant, RVD transplant or RVD no transplant. We can't see it because we can't really reliably go deeper than 10 to the minus six. And so that's one potential way to think of it. The second is that perhaps what transplant is doing is on the surface similar to what KRD without a transplant is doing, but it's the changes in the microenvironment that allow for anti-tumor immune responses to be more robust in the post-transplant period that sets up a better benefit from maintenance lenalidomide. That's a totally hypothetical concept, but it may be an alternative explanation if you don't believe that you're achieving deeper responses by adding in the transplant as consolidation. I actually think it's probably a little bit of both, but I don't know that we have a lot of data to be able to say if it's a little bit of both or if it's something else. But certainly there are reasons to know or think that transplant might be deepening the response and that ultimately uh, is the benefit in that context. Now, there is certainly very interesting data as well, looking at uh, exceptional responders to transplant, again, looking at subsets of patients from an eight-year landmark and finding that there may be, in fact, a plateau on that curve for some of these folks. Uh, this is data that was published uh, uh, last year, really beginning to look at some of those patients. Um, uh, um, and again, these are patients who, uh, it's 9% of patients who got an early transplant within 12 months of diagnosis and have this sustained plateau. And I think to get back to some of the genetics and genomics that uh, Professor Mateo showed us earlier, that's the only way we're going to be able to distinguish some of these folks because they are such a small subset at diagnosis. But there clearly are about 10% of patients that are exquisitely sensitive to high-dose melphalan, and some of them never need treatment again. And I think this is the plateau on this curve, or this is the plateau that you may see from the Luerta curve that the Spanish group published almost a decade ago, looking at long-term follow-up, finding high dose, uh, looking at high-dose therapy and autologous transplantation. So again, improved progression-free survival and sustained MRD continues with high-dose therapy, even with new drugs. Again, beware of the siren song of early MRD negativity know that we need longer endpoints to really appreciate this. The potential opportunity for CAR to replace transplant is really dependent on two factors. The first is antigens may be needed for CAR-T expansion. And if you use a CAR-T following induction, 
you may not have enough anti-tumor antigen to induce expansion of the car. That you may, but we don't know. We've never really looked at cars reliably in a low-level disease burden. And then to me, the question is about long-term PFS and persistence, because we know persistence of CAR T cells are relatively short. And I think myeloma is not like ALL or diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. If you want to cure myeloma, I think you have to treat it for a period of time. And then if you're going to stop, be prepared to measure MRD status in case and when it comes back, because it's not likely to stay away. And finally, I want to really get to the heart of this one point. There are all these trials saying new therapy is just as good as a transplant, so we don't need to do the transplant. We have gotten where we are in myeloma with a median survival in excess of 10 years by not being satisfied with just as good. We've always wanted to push the window beyond just as good and say significantly better. So the goal of replacing transplant should not be to say, this is just as good as a transplant. It should be to say, what we're recommending is significantly better than a transplant. That's why we don't need it any longer. So maintain that that uh, aspirational goal. And then uh, understanding which patients do not benefit from transplant. And right now that's a pretty small number of patients. We should continue to identify that. I, I believe that there is probably a subset, but we don't know how to genetically or genomically identify them at this time. And I think that is the work of ongoing, uh, ongoing study at this time point. Thank you for listening to the Multiple Myeloma Hub podcast. Stay tuned for the next episode, Satellite Symposium, Treating Elderly and Frail Patients with MM cure versus disease control. We would also like to thank our sponsors, Pfizer, Sanofi, AbbVie, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Genentech, GSK, Roche, Amgen, and Oncopeptides. Multiple Myeloma Hub Podcasts, brought to you by Scientific Education Support.